0: So today, we're going to do something a little bit different. This is a time in our worship service typically where we have a time of corporate prayer, a time where we bring our requests, our hearts to God of asking Him to move in mighty ways. We'll do something a little different today. I'm actually going to divide my sermon into two parts. First part we're going to do right now with the corporate prayer, and then the second part during the normal sermon time after the scripture reading. I'm doing this for two reasons. Number one, I'm doing this so you don't fall asleep. If it's just one long sermon, there's less likelihood of you falling asleep during the sermon. A lot of you guys are still recovering from all the turkey and all the good eating and shopping and all that kind of good stuff, so I don't want to do that to you guys. But two, I want to do this because I want us to practice what I'm preaching on today. I'm preaching on confession, doesn't fit well with the theme of Thanksgiving, but this is just where we ended up. We're looking at the book of Psalms as a whole, and we're looking at all the themes in the book of Psalms. We saw lament. We saw Thanksgiving. We saw hymn. We saw themes of Christ the King. We saw letters on how, to, or Psalms on how we're supposed to live life and how we're supposed to weep and mourn together. Today, we're going to see a Psalm of Confession. And during that time, what we normally do, during a normal corporate time of prayer, I'm going to invite you into a time of confession. And so then during our normal psalm, that's when we'll dive into, our normal time of sermon is when we'll actually dive into the scripture of Psalm 51. So first of all, I want to start off with why is confession important? Confession of sin is ultimately an application of the gospel. Authentic confession of sin is a mingling of humble contrition before God. Faith-filled appropriation of the grace of reconciliation and heartfelt gratitude for the satisfaction that has been accomplished in the cross of Christ. Confession is ultimately what we do when we apply the gospel. When we look at the truth of the gospel, the reality of the gospel before ourselves every day is confession. We're practicing the reality of the gospel. We're confessing our need of a Savior. We're confessing that there is a true Savior who takes our sin, and we're confessing the reality that our sin can be forgiven and we can live in redemption. So we confess, and when we confess, we're actually putting into practice application in that moment the very truth and the beauty of the gospel. So one, confession is important because it's application of the gospel. Two, confession reestablishes your intimacy with God. There is something goofy and so, something so sweet and something so special when Josiah comes into my life. We'll have to yell at Josiah, I say, Josiah! That's my dad yelling voice. Josiah, stop hitting your brother. Stop stealing his food. Stop taking his toys. Josiah does a lot of messed up stuff. He's just quick. No, Josiah's a great kid. But there's something so sweet when I yell at him, and he looks at me, and he does this little like, cry face that he does. He goes, oh, my dad yelled at me. And he goes, that's oh. It takes a while. It's like really slow-mo for some reason. And he sits on my lap, and he acknowledges that he did wrong. And what I love about this is not just that he acknowledges that he did wrong to Hudson, because I have to be like, say sorry to Hudson. He doesn't want to do that part. But he looks at my face and acknowledges that he did something that his dad doesn't like. He did something that his dad disapproved of, and he didn't like having his dad yell at him. He doesn't like having his dad be disapproving of him. Guys, when we confess, it's this connection that goes so so intimately with God that's saying when we confess of our sin, even if it's a sin against someone else, when we confess to God, we reestablish our intimacy with him. We reestablish this reality that when we sin, it's not just against so-and-so that you sin against, but you also ultimately sin against God, which ultimately states that all you move, all the connections, all of life revolves around this one ultimate connection with God. So when we confess, we reestablish our true intimacy, our true connection with, with God. Three, the ultimate purpose of confession is right worship. We want to worship God with no hindrances, and with all of your being, confession helps us to take away the blocks and focus, our true, focus on our true object of our affection. When we confess, there's things that are hindering us, the guilt that was holding us back, the remorse that we felt that kept us from truly worshiping the object of our affection. When we confess, it takes away those barriers and allows us to worship in spirit and in truth. And then number four, in the gospel, the purpose of confession and repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ, to weaken our impulse to do anything contrary to God's heart. I'll say that again. In the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ, to weaken our impulse to do anything contrary to God's heart. It's in confession that we tap into. It's in confession that we dive into. It's in confession that we kind of fall deeper to the intimacy with Jesus so that it weakens our impulses. It weakens our compulsion to all the other sin. Here's what sin does in your life. I want you to hear this. Sin messes up your perception. Sin messes up your view. The more and more, the deeper and deeper you're into sin, the more and more you, you realize, oh, it doesn't seem that bad. And the more sin occurs in your life, the further away you are of seeing the reality of the gospel and the truth. Guys, I want you to hear this. When we confess, you tap back into the gospel truth that God has saved us from our sin nature, that's given us a new heart. And when we tap into that, when we tap into confession, we're then saying, God, we're acknowledging our need to control our impulses of sin. So, confession is so important for us. Confession is so important for our souls. So, the question I want to ask this morning is how do we confess? So, I want to go with a three, I love alliteration. So, I'm going to go with three R words, okay? There's one, remorse, repent, and renewal. Do you guys like that graphic, by the way? So proud of it. Eric designed it, but I told him, I was like, Eric, I want this in a graphic. I don't know how to do it. Make it for me. Good job, Eric. Here's what we have, is this idea, this is what I truly believe confession is about, is we get to remorse, and we look at the sin and the stuff that we did. Now, here's the problem, here's, here's the deal. I think so many of us look at the sin that we've committed in our own life, and it sickens us. Maybe you're sitting in here today, and there's last week I had a lady came up to me, and I kid you not, I, she's here before everybody else, and I kid you not, right before she walked into the door, I, I promise you, she literally took a breath. <sighs> And she stepped in. And I walked in next to her, I'm like, you okay? She goes, I'll be honest with you, Lawrence, I honestly felt like God was gonna strike me as I walked into this building. And I'm like, what? She goes, you don't know the stuff I've done. I thought He's gonna strike me down the moment he walked into this building. And I looked at her and goes, oh, believe me, if he's gonna strike anyone down, <laughs> I would stay away from me then. And she honestly felt that in her heart. She hasn't been to church. She told me she hasn't been to church in a, a very long time, grew up in a Catholic home up in New York City. And she told me she also felt like God would strike her dead the moment she stepped into her building because she didn't deserve, wasn't allowed. You don't know the messed up stuff she's done. Guys, there are some of you in this room and you're sitting here in this place and you're, some of you are sitting here and you're like, yeah, I'm pretty messed up. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins I've committed. You don't know the thoughts I've had. You don't know the dark places in my heart that I even try to hide from Everybody. And we sit there and we sit in remorse. We sit in brokenness. We sit in suffering in our sin. We sit in guilt. And we sit in there remorse. And here's the problem. That's why there's a circle around the remorse. So often, people, we just sit there because we don't know what to do with it. You know, there are people who get caught committing a crime. And maybe they're not repentant, but they're remorseful. They're like, oh, I got caught committing a crime. So they sit in remorse. They sit in the penalty of their actions. And here's a problem with that, is that it doesn't take the next step in what confession really ultimately does. It's confession takes you from remorse, because in confession, who are you confessing to? You're turning away from what you're remorseful about, and you're turning to repentance. Turning Repentance literally means to turn. And you're saying, I will no longer do what I'm remorseful for, and I'll go into repenting. So the next slide is one without the circle. Is when we confess, we sit and acknowledge the remorse that we feel, the guilt that we feel, the shame that we feel. We're true to it. We acknowledge it. We own it. But then we go to, we repent from it. We turn from it. We turn to the one and only source. We'll see later on in Psalm 51 what that really looks like in a practical way. We'll see how David does this. But we turn to the God, the source of everlasting love. We turn to God, who is the only source of knowing even what is beautiful. That we know that what is, can be remorseful about. That we turn to God, who is the only source of justice and righteousness, so that we can we know to be remorsing, We can we know to feel guilt. We can know to feel shame because we know that there is a source of all that is right and good and true and just. And we turn to Him in repentance. And as we turn to Him in repentance, it leads to our renewal. As we come to him in repentance, it leads to our acknowledgement of the work of Jesus, which leads to complete and utter renewal. This is how we confess. We start off on an individual. There's three different ways for us to confess. One is as an individual, individual confession. And in that, we need to be open and honest. Bonhoeffer has this quote, You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were, were without sin. Can I tell you this practice of confessing open and honestly as an individual is a practice that we need to come before God and know that he knows us. So be open and honest in your confession. Forsake your sin then. Be disgusted by them. Learn to not desire them. And know that sin is ultimately against God and that continued sin warps our perception. Walter Brueggemann says this, real sin is a violation of relationship with God. Our skewed lives finally must deal with God. God is utterly in the right. So as we deal with sin individually, know that he's disgusted by our sin. Know that he's against God and God alone. So as you can individualize, you confess sin. Know these truths. And I'm going to skip over these resolutions. I'm only going to do the first one, Nathan. But here's a resolution by uh, Jonathan Edwards that he wrote in his resolutions. And it says this, Resolved to confess frankly to myself all that which I find in myself, either infirmity or sin, and if it be what concerns religion, also to confess the whole case to God and implore needed help. This is a resolution that Jonathan Edwards said that he would do, that he daily resolved to confess frankly to myself all that which I find in myself. Guys, as an individual, the call to confession leads from remorse to repentance to renewal and this is a beautiful thing that God has given us and we as an individual no, have no need to go to a priest we have no need to go to a pastor we have no need to go to a shrine or a sacred place to play, pray a confession that we right where we are because of the work of Jesus Christ and because of the Holy Spirit in us have all that we need to confess can I tell you what that does psychologically to us have you ever like, had a secret like, sin or thing that you've ever done that you kind of like, kept it a secret? Did that ever eat at you? Did that ever gnaw at you? I remember, I'm probably opening too much, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. I remember when I was in college, and this is uh, not in college, when I was in high school, I, my parents were huge into grades. I and mean, we're talking like, I better make straight A's, typical, you know, tiger parent kind of situation here. Well, my senior year of high school, I made an F because I skipped school a lot. That's true, I'm just honest. Just being real with you, I made pretty much straight A's my whole life. Um, my senior year of high school though, I decided it'd be a lot of fun to start skipping school. Mind you, I wasn't a bad kid. I would skip school and go to my youth minister's house and just kind of like hop out of church. That's what I'm I'd, I'd dead serious. I'd, I'd go to, like hang out at the mall, or go get breakfast at Quarms and go to my youth minister's house and like do, help him with work. And he'd be like, what are you doing here? Go, to, go back to school. I'm like, no, I'm not going back to school. But I would skip school a lot. And I remember my first nine weeks report card, I got my first F, an F on a report card. That's a huge deal in my house. I'm talking like, I don't know, like my parents might kill me, literally. I thought I would die. And so I kept that. I forged my parents' signature. You know how you have your parents on your report card? Forged my mom's signature, JCU is my dad's name. I was really good at that. I forged my dad's signature. And I went about my, went about my normal deal, um, had my parents, we had an entry machine at the house, old school entry machine, no cell phones back then, and um, I would go home and erase the messages that told them that Lawrence would miss school every day. I missed so much school, it got to the point at one point where um, I literally, my parents would be like, how was school today? I would be like, oh, it's great, good stuff. Math, yeah, awesome. And I missed, I would skip, particularly I'd skip Spanish every single day. I was terrible at it and I would always skip it. And I felt to the point, I kid you not, I'll be honest with you guys, it literally ate at my soul. (laughs) Having to lie every day to my parents, I was a terrible kid at that point. I was like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And it literally ate at me, ate at me, until finally my, uh, my history teacher and my math teacher were married uh, the Browns, Mr. and Mrs. Brown. She was my 10th grade history teacher, and my senior year, he was my calculus teacher. And they decided to go to my parents' restaurant. My parents owned a restaurant. And they walked in, and they were like, hey, how's Lawrence, and they're like, how are you guys doing? They're like, hey, and you know, "How's my parents like, how's Lawrence doing in school? And they looked at her, and I'm like, oh, has he not been really sick lately, and missing school a lot? <laughs> and my parents were like, what? <laughs> Lawrence doesn't miss school. I came home that night, guys, can I tell you? (laughs) It was bad. (laughs) At the same time, just to be completely honest, at the same time, it was bad in that moment, and yes, I had to suffer the repercussions of my actions. But there was something so freeing about not having to carry a lie. There was something so freeing about being able to just be like, all right, full confession, here's what I've done, here's what I've been doing, and thank you for rescuing me. I needed it. Because I probably would have thrown away my whole senior year. (laughs) You stopped me early enough. Long story, by the way, I ended up pulling Bs in all those classes I made Fs in by, like, making good grades the next story. So I didn't fail out of high school. Okay. Guys, there's something freeing about confessing. And as an individual, guys, you're called to confess. This is a gift. I don't, I want you not to miss that. This is a gift you've been given. You have the gift to right where you're, right where you're at. You don't have to go to a church. You don't have to go to, um, a special place. You don't have to see a special person. You have to see a priest right here, right where you're at. Through Jesus Christ's work and the Holy Spirit in you, you can now say, God, I confess. The sin that has gripped my heart. The sin that has taken my affections away from you. The sins that have taken me away from my family and my friends. The sin that's in the deepest part of me. The sin that I've been born with. The sin that I live in. The sin that I can't defeat on my own. God, I need you. And here's the incredible thing. He gives you that gift because when you confess, you're freed, you're renewed. You get to repent and become renewed. You get to practice the gospel all over again in your life. That's a gift given to you as an individual to practice confession individually by yourself wherever you're at, and it's yours. But you also have another gift. You get to practice confession in a small group of people. Specifically at Waypoint Church, we would say you practice, practice that gift in your small groups, in your accountability groups. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Guys, I want you to hear this. I want you to know this, that God has given us the gift to not just confess individually, but to confess together. Bonhoeffer says this in Life Together. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God, and he finds forgiveness of all his sin and the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost its power. There's something about expressing your sin to your brother that makes it lose its power of self-justification. When you express your sin, it loses its power over you, and you get to now confess to one another, and in that one another, you get to combat that sin together. Bonhoeffer also said this, confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts, it cuts a man down, is a dreadful blow to pride. What a gift. What a gift that is, that you can be in your small group, you can be in a place of your brothers and your sisters, and you can look at them and you can say, here's what I struggle with, here's what I am struggling with, I need your help. Will you pray for me? Because what that does, let me tell you, it tells your brother that hey, you're not the only one. Sometimes, doesn't it feel like it when you go to a place like this? Guys, I love you guys. I look around. You guys are like the most beautiful, amazing people I've ever seen in my life. I think you guys are absolutely incredible. But sometimes I can come in here and I can look at you guys and see what you guys are doing, see how amazing you are, and be like, yeah, they must not struggle like I do. Right? Isn't that easy to do when you go to church on Sunday and people like, dress up a little nicer and the kids are all cute and everybody is taught to say how good everything is? You know, and I'm doing well, how about you? I'm doing really good. You know, and All this kind of stuff. Isn't it easy to feel like you're the only one who's struggling with sin? Isn't it easy to feel like you're the only one just to kind of be like, ooh, gosh, why am I the only one that feels messed up? God, we need you to confess. Even not for, just for yourself, for each other. I need to know you're struggling with sin so I don't feel alone. I need to know you're struggling with sin so that I don't feel like I'm the only messed up one around. But can I also tell you this? When we express our sin to one another, guys, a lot of its power gets taken away. Because what is the power of sin often? Is that this, this, this weird sense of, like, pride that says, I shouldn't be struggling with this. Or this weird sense of self-justification that says, well, it's okay that I struggle with this. Both of those lose its power when you confess to each other. Right? It attacks you, it attacks your humility. So brothers and sisters, confess uh, in your small groups, in your accountability groups. And lastly, confess corporately. As we seek renewal together, God is going to renew us as a church. And this is why we need to confess corporately. Confession of sin in the presence of others is applying and celebrating the gospel together. So again, confession of sin in the presence of others is applying and celebrating the gospel together. We need to apply the gospel together. We need to come together and confess together. We need to show that we, as corporate body, as a corporate entity, say confess. Confess for our sins. Confess the sins of our brothers. Confess that we can come because when we do so, we celebrate the fact that we're not perfect. Guys, can I tell you this? I don't know why, I, I love it, I find it so weird that people call Christians hypocrites. And I'm like, why do you call Christians hypocrites? Christians are the first ones to acknowledge the fact that they're sinners, right? Like, it's kind of, it's kind of weird to like, oh, you're such a hypocrite, Christians are the first one, Christians mess up just as much as everybody else. Yes, they do. They should know that. Christians are the first ones that should say, I mess up just as much as everybody else, of course, because Christians are the ones that say that they need a savior, they're the ones ultimately saying we mess up the most because we need the most. We mess up so bad that we need someone else to help save us because if we don't have anybody to save us, then in left to our own devices, we stink, we're smelly, we're messed up people. We need a healer. Yes, we're hypocrites. Yes, we need a savior. We need Jesus. That's ultimately what we say as Christians. And so corporately, we're confessing our need of salvation. Corporately, we're confessing our need of a Savior. So here's what I want us to do really quickly. In our places, in our seats right now, is I want us to confess. You guys are like, oh, that's kind of weird, Lawrence. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a moment of quiet time. In this moment of time, I want you to confess. I want you to, you and God individually, just pray your heart. Pray your confession, say, God, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I need. I need your help. Against you and you alone have I sinned. And then I want us to pray corporately, a prayer of confession. So I'm going to give you a moment to do that. I want you to give you a moment to pray. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we confess and acknowledge, uh, as we receive this means of grace by him, I want you to hear, after we do this prayer of confession, I want you to hear this, this beautiful pardon that we have in Christ so take some time right here guys and if you would just pray I'm going to now lead us in a time of corporate prayer of confession. Hear, O oh Lord, and answer us, God, because we are poor and needy. God, we chase so often after the idols of this world. God, we think money and prosperity and security. God, we think the, the answers to this world will fill our hearts. God, we build for us cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water and think that's what will give us life. God, we confess that we're so easily led astray. And we ask, Lord, like the song says, and come thou found, God, we ask that, God, will you take our hearts, Lord, take and seal it, God, because we know we are prone to wander. God, we thank you that you're the shepherd that went after the lost sheep. You're the shepherd that went after the one, God, we thank you that you're the prodigal, you're the prodigal father, the expansive father, the lavish father who ran after the prodigal son. Because God, we know who we are. God, we were so easily led astray. So God, for individually, God, for our, are running away from you, are wandering from you, we ask that you take us back and you, you bring us back into your fold as you chase after us. But God, corporately as a church body, how we, we acknowledge and we, God, we are ashamed of our selfishness. God, we're ashamed to acknowledge our lack of desire to even share your gospel, our, our lack of desire to see your kingdom come on earth as it is heaven. We often just want to see our own kingdom come. And, God, we ask, Lord, that, God, as we are disgusted by our sin, may we turn to you, may we repent and say your way is the better way. God, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your beauty. We want to see your justice. We want to see your mercy on the streets, God. We want to see your kingdom come. So, God, will you, will you show us what it's like? Will you help us? Holy Spirit, will you guide us into that reality? God, hear our hearts, Lord take and seal it. God, seal it for your courts above. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to hear this pardon of sin found in Psalm 103 in Hebrews 10. It says this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. As far as the east is from the west, so far has removed our transgressions from us. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is God's gospel promise to forgive our sin and to give us eternal life by his grace alone because of Christ's one sacrifice finished on the cross. Thanks be to God. Amen.
1: Hear the word of the Lord. From Psalm 51, you can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin This is the word of the Lord.
0: Amen. All right, quick question for everybody. What made David famous? (laughs) Goliath, killing Goliath, right? Right, typical answer. He was, um, was that all that he was, the guy who killed Goliath? What else was he? King. King. Anything else? Shepherd. Man after God's own heart, which is like the coolest title ever. I always tell people, in the Bible, it talks about two people as being like the the most awesome titles. It's David, a man after God's own heart, and John the Baptist, who Jesus says there's no greater man born of woman. Could you imagine those titles? But they're also like two of the most different people you've ever seen, Right. That's what I love about God. God doesn't have like, oh, this is the way exactly. It's about the heart. Because if you look at John the Baptist, and in my mind, I picture him this like burly dude with that eats like insects and honey, you know, and wears like uh, um, uh, fur, like that fur. Um, what's the word? Um, yes, gosh, could not think of it. And then you have King David, who was a shepherd, but then he's like, he's he's a king. He's in royalty. He's he's wealthy. He's conquering. He's a soldier. He's a warrior. He's a poet. And that's so incredible, the two highest compliments that you can ever call anybody in the Bible, but God, man after God's own heart, and greatest man ever born a woman, yet they're so radically different, right? I, I always think that's the coolest thing. So David was a king, a poet, a psalmist, a warrior. I mean, he, he did it all. And I love when uh, there's a line that they fought like, one of my favorite movies of all time, they fought like Scotsmen, they fought like warrior poets. I, I always thought that was the coolest line ever. What was David's greatest accomplishment? Anybody? Temple? Who said that? Good job, Temple. What else? Anybody else? Because they're doing. Like, this has got to be a trick question. So, like, I'm not going to say Goliath because he's just waiting for that. <laughs> There's a guy named Joe Novinson said Psalm 51 is David's greatest victory. This is the greatest victory of David given to him by God on the turf of his heart over his sin and his past. This is a guy who became king, conquered lands and conquered armies, defeated Goliath in single battle, who wrote some of the most beautiful poetry. He wrote most of the Psalms, the anatomy of the human soul. Yet this guy says Psalm 51 might be David's greatest victory. And honestly, I feel like there's some truth to that statement. Here's the stage of this psalm. It's a familiar story. It's found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. The Israelites were off at war. David wasn't. He probably should have been. This is when he should have been leading his army, but he decides not to go to war. Instead, he sends his army off without him, and he stays back. As he's staying back, he sees Bathsheba bathing, and he calls for her, and then he impregnates her. And then they cover it up. He has her husband, Uriah, one of his best soldiers, most loyal men, killed. For at least nine months, David is just like living in this sin. Not really thinking about it, just kind of like whatever about it. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, God forces the issue and the prophet Nathan confronts him. And as a result of that confrontation, this is the psalm of repentance that we see in Psalm 51. Can I tell you something? If you're here today and you're, You've been bruised by your sin. If you're here today, you've committed great sin. If you're here today, you're thinking, I'm wounded by my sin. I've done so much. You don't know what I've done. God should strike me down right here. Can I tell you that the man after God's own heart is the man who wrote this psalm? And he's a man who basically used his power to impregnate a woman, he used his power to murder a man. And this was his story of his greatest victory. Sinclair Ferguson calls Psalm 51 a guiding star. It's a guiding star to understanding the gospel. Is it a guiding, guiding star to understanding our great sin and our even greater Savior. We see in Psalm 51 a heart that is hardened and hiding, becomes shattered and then shaped by God's grace. We see repentance. And today we're going to look at this anatomy of confession and repentance. How do I know if I'm really repenting? How do I know if God has broken through my hardened and hiding heart? So in this psalm, we're going to see kind of this journey of confession. What do you confess in repentance? Confession is one of those things that's that's part of the anatomy of repentance. You have to tell the truth. You have to call it like it really is. You need to kind of really, in order to really repent, you need to really Confess. It begins, repentance begins with confession. This process, this journey of renew, to renewal begins with confession. It begins with this call to confession. So let's look at the first few verses of this psalm. David uses all kinds of kind of biblical language to talk about what sin is. He talks about transgression, iniquity, evil. And he doesn't, notice he's using a singular. He, he says, my transgressions, my iniquity, my evil. It says, verse four says this. I, I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you maybe, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar in order to understand what God what David's getting at in the first few verses. He's literally taking this as a he's taking ownership over his own sin. He's personalizing. He's saying this is what I've done, and he's owning up to it. Guys, can't tell you this. There's so many people in this world who do not take personal ownership of their own sin. We look at sin and be like, well, you know, I'm this way because my parents made me this way. I'm this way because I was taught to be this way. Well, you don't know what I've been through, Lawrence. I, I'm this way because I've been, this happened to me. and this had happened to you, you'd be like that too. And maybe I would be. But here's David and his sin taking personal ownership of his sin. Guys, can I tell you something? It is so important, guys, for you to understand that your sin is still your sin. I don't know the reason where your sin came from. It probably came from other people's sin as well. But your sin is still yours, and you need to still own it the only way to healing, the only way to restoration, the only way to renewal is not to sit there and be like, well, it's not my fault. My parents didn't love me. My parents left me at this age. It's not my fault, I struggled at school. And whatever it may be, whatever it may be, it's yes, all those things may be true. I don't know what circumstances you came from. Can I still tell you this though? Nothing will be accomplished until you own your own sin. You need to own it. It's your sin. David's sitting here, he's saying, It's my sin. Well, God gave me too much power. That'd be a terrible one to say, but yeah, God gave me too much power, he gave me too much wealth. I can do whatever I want, that's not good, it's your fault, God. Or, well, What was she doing? Bathing on the roof, God? Well, what? Guys, I want you to hear this own your own sin, every one of you, whatever it may be. It's the first step in renewal. And in your confession, offer a precise confession. David says here that against you, and you only have I sinned. He's not saying he didn't sin against Jariah. He's not saying he didn't sin against Bathsheba. He's not saying he didn't sin against his people. But what he's saying ultimately at the root of it, at the root of sin, root of everything underneath it, is a sin against God and the character of God. He's saying, deliver me. He's saying, I love this, guys. In verse 5 it says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Verse five, I'll put on the screen real quick. It says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's literally saying, this is, he's not blaming his mom. He's saying literally that I was born in sin, that there's a part of me, there's this kind of issue in me, there's this part of me that's twisted, that's in me and it's a part of me. And he's saying, I need grace in the deepest places, the darkest places, the coldest places, the inner parts. There's a part of me that's pervasively twisted. And I can't fix it. I need you, God. I need you to go to those dark places. I need your mercy deep in me. Guys, the first and always the hardest step is to confess your true and utter need. To admit that you're morally bankrupt. To admit that you're broken. That you admit that you're bruised. To admit that your sin is ever before me. I want you to hear this no less than 18 times in this prayer. David is begging God. He's pleading with God. He's saying, have mercy on me. He says, purge me. He says, wash me. He says, clean me. He says, create me. He says, renew me. Guys, over again, this is the man at the end of his resources. He, this is a posture of full and complete need. Guys, understand this, that his confession, his starting point, is a place, God, that's literally saying, there's a part of me deep inside of me. I don't like it, but it's there. That is evil. I don't like it, but there's a part of me when my friend of mine gets something that I get jealous. I hate that. There's a part of me I I don't like it when I look at something that I warp it and twist it in my mind. There's a part of me I don't like it, but it's there and I can't help it and I need you God to fix it. That's confession. That's acknowledging your state and your need of God, your need of a savior. I recently read this story from a pastor in the Chicago area. And he tells a story about visiting a ministry that was called the Shepherd's Home for Children. And it's a home that was a ministry that cared specifically for children who had Down syndrome. And this pastor goes on telling this story about meeting with the director of the ministry. And he's saying, the director's giving him a tour. He's saying all these like, amazing things that, that's going on and how they show love and compassion to these children. And he says this. He says, the director said, they, they, you know, we teach the gospel here. We teach that the word became flesh, that Jesus lived a life that we should live. And that Jesus died the death that we should die. That Jesus defeated death. He's been resurrected. And we teach these kids that one day, Jesus is coming back. And he's going to make all things right. So then the director looks at the pastor and says, Do you know our biggest maintenance problem here at the shepherd's home? Some kind of odd questions. He said, I had no idea. And the director says, Dirty windows because every day these kids run to the windows and they press their hands and their faces against them and they say, is today the day that Jesus is going to make all things right? What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of a posture of need. Waypoint Church, do you have a posture of need this morning? Do you see that you're morally bankrupt? That you're broken and bruised? Our confession should look something like David. Confession requires that we see ourselves as we really are, and the weakness and the need that David is experiencing here, again is, is this defeat? This magnificent defeat, this magnificent defeat that G- David is feeling, is leading him to his greatest victory. Because in this defeat, David clings to his need for God. Can I tell you something? Can I just be honest with you, my people? We're blessed people in many ways. We have incredible resources. God's given us education and prosperity. He's given us a nation where we can worship. He's given us opportunities to to financially and socially advance. He's given us a period of incredible health and technology. We're blessed in many ways, but guys, can I tell you one of the ways that we are so, so lacking? It's because we're blessed in so many ways, we so often neglect to see our need for God. Because we're blessed in so many ways, we're so often deprived of our true neediness. And I can not tell you something, that is a hard thing for us to get. This is a hard message, and it's not one that I, I, I take lightly, I say easily, but I'm just going to say this out there. I'm just going to throw this, I'm just going to say it, and I guess just kind of step out on a limb here and say this. Guys, I want you to hear this. I want you to know this. It's sometimes, guys, that we've been told way too often that we're really good. We've been told way too often, and we think that we can accomplish anything. Right? Do you ever say that to your kids? It's a good message. I'm not saying don't say this to your kids, but if you just put your minds to it, you can accomplish, and you can do anything. It's not true. because that gives you all the power and it makes you God we have a neediness deep inside of us that we often choose to ignore because if we acknowledge our neediness that we acknowledge that we're not all-powerful and if we're not all-powerful that means we're not God and most of us hate not being in control right most of us the idea of not being in control is like whoa I need to control I need to know when things happen. I need to plan out every moment of of my life because when I plan it out, I feel like in control. If I'm not in control, then life is random. If life is random, I can't handle all the heart heart breaks and losses. I can't handle all the ups and downs. Right? But can I tell you this? We are not in control. You are not God. And you are ultimately so needy. And I say, thank you, God, for that. Because can I tell you, as much as you think you want to be in control, I thank God that we're not. Because if we thought we were, and we come face to face with all the highs and lows we face in life, we have no answer for that. And having no answer for that, then only in God can we have an answer for all the highs and lows that occur, all the random things that we consider random and terrible that occur. We have an answer for all the suffering and the tragedy that occurs. Because we're not God, and God is in control. We need to confess the reality of our state and who we are. Derek Kidner, the commentary on Psalm says in verse one, the opening plea is the language of one who has no claim to the favor that he begs. The opening plea is the language of one who has no claim to the favor he begs. In other words, David comes with no bargaining chips, no basis of mercy. He's not saying, "Look at my credentials. I killed Goliath. I, you know, am the king." He's literally saying, "God, have mercy on me, only according to Your stead." fast love his whole claim to anything is his claim to look at God because of who you are he's saying God have mercy on me not because I'm good not because I've done great things not because I defeated Goliath but he's saying God have mercy on me because you are good because you are loving because you're and this is the opposite of the way we work isn't it how many times have you gone to God in prayer and be like God can you give me this thing I've been pretty good lately huh and we treat him like Santa Claus right You often go to God in prayer and say, God, I'll do this if you do that. Right? How often do you say, God, well, I've been going to church. I've been faithfully serving. God, you should do this for me. And can I tell you that? Once again, you're completely missing the point. You're completely not acknowledging who you really are. You need to go to God with nothing to offer because you have nothing to offer. But what you hold on to, what you hold on to desperately, what you hold on to with everything you have is that he is good and he is loving. And that's so much better than holding on to your own merit, isn't it? So much better than holding on to your own merit holding on to his loving kindness. Because when you hold on to your own merit, then you realize once again, oh man, I'm going to fail again. But when you hold on to his love and his, his steadfast love, then you hold on to something that's eternal, unchanging, unflappable. There's no sacrifice here. Yeah, I love it. Verse 17, David says, the sacrifices of God are what? not a promise to do better. They're not balancing of the scales. That what I can bring to the table, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. There's no sacrifice, no burnt offering. There's nothing. It's just what somebody says is the sweet miracle of empty hands. Nothing to offer. We just hold on to who God is desperately with these empty hands. And after our turning in repentance, and this is what we do. is In the knowledge of our confession, we're turning to him in our repentance. That's what this is. It's taking of our hearts and saying, only by your steadfast love. This is a turning, attuning ourselves to who he is. Then can we start seeing renewal. And I love renewal. I see renewal, three parts of renewal on this. If you look at verses 7 through 12, you see three parts of renewal. Part one of renewal is Cleansing. Purge me with hyssop and I should be clean. Wash me and I should be whiter than snow. And so David knows that he needs this inner washing, this inner cleansing, and he prays for it. God, don't just clean me up, but purge me. Clean completely. Make me. Give me the solution that's going to take away all of it. You guys ever used, um? Oh, what's that stuff called? I just had it written down. I, I, I erased it because I wasn't going to use this illustration, but now I want to use it. So now I don't know what it is. The... The stuff that you use to get, like, like grease and stuff off your hands. It wasn't gasoline. It was, like, it was better than gasoline. I remember I used it one It was, like, magic. Gojo! Who said that? That's what it was. I actually had that written down. I erased it. (laughs) That stuff was magic. I was like, man, this stuff gets everything off. This is incredible. Like, ooh, and it smelled like oranges. Delicious. Don't eat it. And I loved it, and it was incredible. It just it took it all. It just completely made you clean. I was like, this is incredible. Guys, can I tell you, this image of clean, for me, and, and I think about this, this is what I think about, it, is I think about like, just getting covered in mud. I mean, we're just playing football, and you're just covered in mud, and you're dirty, you got blood, and you're just, ugh, you're filthy, and it, just, it kind of weighs on you. Like, all that mud cakes on you. It's all in your clothes, your shirt is drenched, and you're just covered, and it's weighing you down, and slowing you down. It's holding you down. And being clean is just that new shower, that hot shower, that cleansing that comes. Guys, it's what David's talking about. Being renewed starts off by being cleansed. Being cleansed happens from the inside in this situation. Because our dirtiness is not just on the outside, because if it was, then it's just a ceremonial washing would do. But because it's on the inside, we need the Holy Spirit to come inside of us through the work of Jesus Christ. And I love this, this language that he goes, he goes from this kind of cleansing language to a restorative language. He says in verse 8, let me hear the joy and gladness. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, you've, you, you've removed my guilt. You, you kind of took away my, my past record. You washed me. You robed me in righteousness. You made me clean. Tell me you're not ashamed of me. Let me be glad again. Let me hear, let me restore my bones, God. Let me restore your face to me. This idea, of you've forgiven me, but tell me, restore me to the right relationship. It's like my son. You know, you can say, I forgive you, son, it's okay. No, Dad, I, don't, I want more than you just forgiving me, Dad. I want to know that I'm right with you. I want you to wrap your arms around me. This is what I always do with my son when he cries. You know, and he's like, Josiah, you can't keep on hitting Hudson. That's not good. You know, try to teach him a lesson. He cries. And I just wrap my arms around him. I love you so much, buddy. And we want that. We just don't want, we want to know that, yes, we're forgiven. That's good. That is so good to be forgiven, to be cleaned and washed. That's good. But there's something so good, not just about being forgiven, but then also being said, no, but our relationship is good. It is right. It is good. I love you. I got you. I don't care what you did, man, you're you're good, you're my son. And it's tough, because if you're in a dating relationship and you messed up, you're not good. You know what I'm saying, if you're in a dating relationship and you're like, oh, we've been dating for a month and I forgot, or I forgot your birthday, you're not good. She might say she forgives you, but you're not good. You guys know what I'm saying? It's true, you're not good in that situation. This is what this is though, this is, you're restored. You're good. It's a dad picking you up and saying, yeah, you might have messed up, son, and I, but I love you. You're good. You're learning from this. Your relationship is right. It is restored. Do you hear this restorative language here? Restore unto me my joy, my salvation. Let the bones of the Lord have broken rejoice. It's restorative language. But in this renewal then comes creation language. He says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. This is creation, this is the word that Moses used in Genesis 1 for God creating all things, to bring light out of darkness, to bring order out of chaos. So he's saying, don't just clean me, God. Please don't just restore me, God, but make new, God. Make me new. Give me newfound trust in you. Give me a new heart. Give me a new willing spirit. Help me to love what you love, God. Help my passions be your passions, God. Your priorities be my priorities, God. Give me new, God, that is our prayer. Will you make all things new? In our confession and our repentance, that's what we're stating over and over again. God, make us all new. Make this world and all its flaws and its brokenness new. This confession, this process, this anatomy of confession and repentance we see here starts off with this beautiful acknowledgement of our need, our confession of our sin and against who we've sinned turns into this idea that of repentance, of, of turning into the God who is of His merit that we can even come to Him. That we come to Him based on not our record or, or not our righteousness but because of who He is and His steadfast love which leads to beautiful renewal. This renewal that has this beautiful imagery of of cleansing, of restoration, and of new creation. And so ultimately, guys, what confession and repentance does for you is that it makes you new. That makes you new. That's the stating of the gospel over and over again. That's what the gospel ultimately did for you. Do you get that? What Jesus did when he died upon the cross is he took upon all the sin, all of your sin, all your filth. He took it upon himself and he gave you a new heart, new status, new identity as an heir of God. That's what he did in the gospel. So when we confess every bit of our sin, we're proclaiming the gospel over again. And when we proclaim the gospel over again, we're making all things new over again. And we're making all things new over again. We're doing the very call of God that he's placed upon us in this world. Is to make all things new. See, when we confess internally, we're doing what we're supposed to externally be doing. Do you hear that? When we confess and repent, we're doing internally what he calls us externally to do, is that we're calling others to that expression of repentance and confession. We're also calling them to the world and all its brokenness to be made new again in Christ. So people of God, Waypoint Church, will you confess? Will you repent? And will you be made new? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great work of Jesus upon the cross. God, we thank you for the, the gift of confession and repentance. The gift of renewal that you give us. May we see our need for you. God, may we see our utter need for you. And turn to you, not with our own merit, but based on your steadfast love. Will you do a work in us in making us new? And will you show us and shape us and make us, make, how to make the world new around us? In Jesus' name, amen.